question show time. As always, wherever you are on my channel, if a question pops into your brain, type it into the comments. I will gather them up and answer them here. I'm really done with winter time. It's time for some summer now, please. All right, let's get into it. Oh, and stick around again at the end. Special guest answer, although in text form, not in video form, but still. All right, let's get on with it. Irritable John syndrome. Fraser, infinite thank yous for answering all our questions. Holy smokes, I don't know how you do it. Thank you, though. I see some of the questions are downright ridiculous. Some you've already answered. Some are easily searchable via Google. You take the time to answer every single one, whether they're patrons or not. I don't know if you get told thank you enough for your time you put in answering everyone's questions. I hope you know you're sincerely appreciated. Well, I do appreciate you telling me that. It means a lot to me, because it is a lot of work. But, but, I mean, the amazing part, of course, is that my job... I, the, my salary comes from the patrons, comes from the advertising on Universe Today. I have My full-time job is to write about space, think about space, to do podcasts about space, and to interact with folks here on, on YouTube. So it's absolutely my honor to take the time to answer everyone's questions. Actually, I find it a lot, a lot of fun, and it's no problem at all. I, the, the problem is that I have to sort of set a certain amount of time for myself, or I'll just sit there and just answer questions all day. But I really feel like, you know, if, if what I'm going to do is say with my life, that I, what I've dedicated my life to is helping people understand about space, sometimes they're going to have watched all 350 50 videos and have gotten themselves to a place where they know all of the questions and then they know which other questions to answer. Uh, very few people are going to do that. They're going to they're going to have a question, they're going to show up, they're going to ask it, and if it only takes me a second, I'm happy to answer it. So, don't worry. Thank you for the kind words, though. I really appreciate it. Rui Casanova. Love your channel. And by the way, how long does it take our solar system to lap the galaxy? Right. So the Milky Way is is a spiral galaxy. It is rotating slowly. The solar system is embedded about halfway between the core of the Milky Way and the outer rim of the galaxy in the Perseus arm of the galaxy, in the Orion Spur, and it takes us about 230 million years to go all the way around the galaxy. And so when you think about that, 230 million years ago, there were dinosaurs. And in fact, the dinosaurs died off like a quarter of a turn or a third of a turn ago. It's just kind of amazing to think about how actually slowly all of these objects are rotating around. The galaxy has only turned a, a few dozen times since the Earth existed at all. So just the time scale blow your mind. Nicholas Shasky. I think the question about dark matter possibly being Dyson spheres should be considered more. You said that they would produce infrared radiation. While I'm in no way educated about the subject, the follow-up question seems to be, can you somehow hide infrared radiation, especially in this context? So, so infrared is heat, right? And so if you take a star and you enclose it in a Dyson sphere, you enclose it in this full enclosure, or maybe you just enclose it in a bunch of space stations, right? These things are going to receive radiation from the sun and they're gonna, then they're going to radiate heat away back off into space. And so let's imagine that we have got this sort of this, this full ball that's around the sun itself and the sun is heating this and this is trapping that radiation. If you're not letting out the infrared radiation, if you're not bleeding away the heat, then you're storing the heat, which means that you need to get hotter and hotter and hotter. And 
and eventually, right, the interior of your Dyson sphere is going to get hot as the surface of the sun. And then the interior of your Dyson sphere is going to get hot as the core of the sun. So, so at some point, they've got to get rid of that heat. Now, the question is, can they make heat disappear? Maybe. I mean, we don't know what the laws of physics are. All we can do is search the universe using the laws of physics as we understand them today. And one of the things that you would expect is that they would need to vent off that heat, they would radiate it away to keep the interior of the Dyson sphere the temperature that they would want to enjoy. And as hot as the surface of the sun is probably not a temperature that a lot of aliens want to be around in. Took two one. What would a black dwarf look like up close? Like a huge liquid ocean? Could you sail a boat on it? Would it be cold gas like Jupiter or exotic degenerate material? What would it look like if you shone a light on it and looked at it? So we talked about this in the last question show. A black dwarf is what you get when a white dwarf cools down to the background temperature of the universe. And so right now, all the white dwarfs that are out there, they're all you know these dead stars that were like our sun and then they've cooled down. They're all shining very brightly in various levels, some in visible light, some in actually in various levels of, of visible light. And they're going to take a long time to cool down. They're going to take billions, trillions of years. And there are none right now today. But you can imagine in quadrillions of years down the road, you're going to have these black dwarfs. So when a white dwarf cools down, they're made of the leftover material that couldn't fuse inside of the core of the star. And so for the one that was made from our sun, it would be made of oxygen and carbon. And you can imagine heavier stars might produce more, you know, other elements inside of it. And so when those materials cool down, they crystallize. And that's what diamonds are under this sort of intense gravity. And so these black dwarves would be gigantic diamonds out there in space. So you couldn't, you know, operate a boat on them, you couldn't sail on them. They would be this crystalline form. Now the gravity would be mind-bending, right? We've had this conversation about, you know, you've probably heard that a, a couple of teaspoons of a white dwarf is as heavy as a mountain. I forget the exact numbers, but it is like crazy. And so if you could get down onto the surface of a white dwarf or a black dwarf, you would just get smeared into this paste one atom wide and added to the to the mass of the of the of the white dwarf so you wouldn't want to go down there and, and check it out but if you shone a light on it it would look like a big diamond liam.edu hey freezer what home telescope would you recommend for stargazing and i'd rather get one that isn't too pricey i know you've gotten this question before but i looked for your answer and i couldn't find it thanks this is a very complicated question uh with a very complicated answer and it's just because there's so many options but the first thing that I recommend that everybody does is they get a pair of astronomical binoculars. These are, you can do it with regular binoculars, like an 8 by 35 binocular, but I really like the bigger ones, like a 15 by 75 or even like a 25 by 100. Get a pair of astronomical binoculars, learn the night sky. If you find yourself going out and enjoy, because what you can see with binoculars is amazing. You can see star clusters, you can see galaxies, you can see the planets, you can see features on the moon, you can see all kinds of really interesting stuff up there in the sky. If you're out there and you're really enjoying that, then you're going to want to go to a telescope. Which telescope should you pick? Kind of depends on what you want to get out of it. And that's why nobody is going to give you a straight answer about this. There's really two paths to go. 
One is, do you want to do visual astronomy? Do you want to just look through a light bucket, you know, look through a telescope and see the night sky and bring it out and show your friends and then put it back away? And all you're going to do is look at stuff in the night sky with your eyes and sort of remember them. If that's what your plan is, then you're going to want to get, we call a light bucket, a Dobsonian telescope. They're, you know, you can get like an eight inch telescope for a few hundred dollars and they're very powerful. The problem is they have to be kind of manually guided around. And so you have to get very good at knowing where the night sky is. You have to sort of line up the objects with your finder scope. And if you're, you've got to point it at something like say Jupiter and then your friend wants to come and look just a minute later, it could be that Jupiter has moved out and you've got to move it to a new location. So they're very powerful, but they're kind of a pain to use. But if you want to go the astrophotography route, if you want to go for having your telescope do a lot of stuff on an automated way, then you're going to want to go with either, what's important is the mount. You're going to want some good mount that's going to allow tracking, and then you can you can attach a camera to your telescope. You can attach um, you can attach a camera right onto the mount itself and use that to take astrophotography. And I find most people, as they do astronomy and they see the kinds of pictures that are in magazines and on the internet and things like that, they want to be able to do that for themselves. And that does take a good mount. And so with that, you're going to want a smaller telescope, maybe a six-inch or a you know, a six-inch uh, refractor, sorry, reflector, like a six-inch six reflector, like a Newtonian telescope, or you're going to want a, a nice small refractor, like a 70-millimeter refractor. Both of them are going to cost you in the 500 to $1,000 range. You know, well, you could probably get like an eight-inch Newtonian for closer to a 1000 bucks or even bigger. So, so start with binoculars, then decide if you want to do visual astronomy or whether you want to do some kind of tracking. I personally really love a tracking toys. I like to just have like a, a little console that I go, show me Saturn, and then the telescope moves. Because I can find these things the old way, and now I'm a lazy old man, and I like to let computers do it. So congratulations. If you're interested, we've got a brand new book that's going to be coming out later on this year, which is The Ultimate Guide to Astronomy. It's written by Dave Dickinson, who does all of the observing journalism on Universe Today. I've contributed a bunch of stuff to it. We've got a whole pile of this exact advice. So stay tuned. I'm, I'm sure you're going to hear lots about it from me over the course of the year. Omega Views. Can stellar black holes be quasars too? First, Quasars are, of course, the actively feeding supermassive black holes in the universe. You get a black hole with millions, sometimes billions of times the mass of the sun at the heart of a galaxy. Material falls into it. The black hole can't eat it all quickly, and so the material piles up and forms this accretion disk. And because of all the energies and, and matter that's swirling around it, you get these jets of material that go out of the top and the bottom of the of the from the black hole and blast off into space. So that's what a quasar is. And because of the masses of the, of the black holes involved, billions, trillions of times the mass of the sun, you know that there is, um, you know, they're just generating so much, you know, they can generate more energy than the rest of the galaxy, all the stars in the galaxy combined. And this is why they're visible from so far away. We can see them billions of light years away. Now, a stellar mass black hole, they're the ones that, that, that are at the, you know, when a star, you know, several times bigger than our sun dies and it produces a black hole. 
and just like a supermassive black hole, they can feed on material. And the, the sort of most common version of this is where you've got a black hole and some other star beside it, and they're orbiting each other, and the black hole is feeding material, pulling material off of the off of its companion star, and that material is is forming an accretion disk around this black hole, and you can get that same situation. The problem is just that the stellar mass black holes, they're smaller, they, they're less energetic, and so you can't see them as far away as you can with the quasars, which are just millions of times more massive than these stellar mass black holes. Mario Avgrino. One final thought. We human beings think very highly of ourselves. Why, not too many centuries ago, we thought that the Earth was the center of the universe, only to find out that our planet is a wonderful little oasis in this ordinary solar system. It's a great home for us, but that's about the only thing that makes it special, and since it's the only home we have, I support the idea of colonizing other planets. But just as we've learned that it's best to preserve the natural order here on Earth, I'm certain that we will likewise decide not to pollute or destroy the rest of the solar system and beyond. I totally agree with you. The thing that we've really learned as we discover more about the solar system, as we discover more about the universe itself, is that the Earth is really, really special. It is the only place that we know of in the entire universe that supports life. I mean, I know it seems like it could be possible for there to be other places in, this, in the universe to have life, but this is the place that we know. And it is the only place in the universe that, that we evolved to live on. And we and all this other stuff that we like, the trees and the birds and, and all of these things evolved here on Earth. And so Earth is the best place in the universe for life. And everything else, I think, is, is fair game. But I think the planets are the next thing, right? So Mars, compared to Earth, kind of sucks. But still, it's so much better than asteroids or comets or things like that. And so I think there's something to be said for preserving what Mars is in its current state into the future. I'm really a big advocate, and the more that I think about this, the more I just keep coming back to this, I'm an advocate for us living in space itself. That, that once you can get out of a gravity well like the Earth, why would you ever want to go back into another gravity well? Sure, you might want to visit, but really you don't want to live down there. You want to live in space. Giant, rotating, orbiting space colonies where you gather materials and you can send them down to Earth to make Earth a better place for what Earth is. Keep the pollution up in space. Just make, preserve Earth as the best place in the universe for life and utilize the rest of the resources in the solar system and then just be really careful about what could be going on on Europa and Enceladus and Mars. Like, just have a thought about it before we set down factories and start polluting those places too. You know, we don't need to. And so why, sh why should we? Anyway, but that's that's my perspective on it, and I know other people really want to live on Mars, and I, I totally get that too. David Mix. I think that the announcement of alien life will be the greatest news in the history of human life. It will absolutely be one of the greatest announcements that has ever been made. It will be probably the most significant scientific discovery in the history of all mankind. But the thing that I find is kind of amazing is that we human beings can get kind of numb to literally anything. And so, you know, we have these magical smartphones in our pocket that connect us to the internet, allow us to see video from almost anywhere 
you know, anywhere in, on that there is technology, wherever we're within a cell signal, and very soon, when the SpaceX constellation of satellites launches, then anywhere on Earth, and yet, um, we're totally, you know, we're, we're we don't really think about it anymore, right? It's like it's totally natural, and so I really think that when we do discover that there are aliens out there, we're going to be like, wow, we're going to freak out, we're going to blow our minds, and religions are going to have this existential crisis to deal with. And people are going to wonder what it means to be a human being, and are we afraid of them? And and then we will just get numb again and go about our lives. And that's that seems to be a thing that we're very good at doing. So I can't wait to discover aliens, and I can't wait to be so comfortable with the idea that we know about aliens that we're that everyone's kind of just it's just routine. Momin Alharo, have we seen a black hole ever? We've not directly observed a black hole. Yet, however, astronomers from across the world gathered together all of these radio telescopes to essentially they combined the uh, the observations from these radio observatories to make a gigantic telescope the size of the Earth. And the purpose of this is called the Event Horizon Telescope. And its job was to image the event horizon of the supermassive black hole at the heart of the Milky Way. And the observations have been done... We're waiting, and this is, I love this story, we're waiting on the data to come from, from Antarctica, because there's one of the telescopes that's down in, in Antarctica, and they had to wait for summer in Antarctica to have an airplane fly out all of the data tapes, because so much data was gathered together. And now they're doing all the data analysis and collating and crunching it all together, and hopefully, within the next couple of months, we're going to see a photograph of the event horizon around a black hole. Now, we still can't see a black hole because black holes are invisible because they absorb all of the matter and, and energy that falls into them. But we can infer that they're there. We can tell that they're there by, by watching the movements of stars at the center of the, of the Milky Way. If you look in certain kinds of wavelengths, you can see stars moving in the center of the Milky Way and they're going around some invisible like an anchor, right? They, they're moving like comets. Over the course of just a couple of years, you can see these, these, these stars whipping around this blank spot in the middle of the Milky Way. So we know that something with about four times the, four million times the mass of the sun is right there, and yet we can't see it. And so the only explanation for that is a black hole. But hopefully, within a few months, we're going to get these first pictures of a black hole itself. Although, I'm sure it's it's going to be underwhelming, right? It's going to be a blob, like a super interesting blob that scientists are going to be really excited about and most people are going to be like, eh, I'll look at the one in Interstellar instead. But still, it's going to be exciting. The Grim. How long does it take to become an astrophysicist? Typically, as an astrophysicist, now I'm not, I, my background is in computer science, but as an astrophysicist, you need to do, say, you need to get your bachelor's degree, which typically is about four years. Ideally, you're going to do it in physics and astronomy. Then you get your master's degree, which is a couple of years after that. And then three plus years to get your PhD, to actually become a, a doctor. But you can sort of get your PhD, and then you can do your postdoc for several years after that before you finally get your, your doctorate. So you're looking at the better part of more than a decade to go from starting university to becoming an astrophysicist. Federico Alvarez. How far into the past or future are the Voyagers due to time dilation? The Voyagers launched from Earth back in 1977, and now they're traveling out into, into deep space. 
and they are going sort of around 20 kilometers per second. Now, they can be, you know, one is going a little faster than, than the other, but about 20 kilometers per second. Now, because they are going that speed, they're going to be experiencing a different amount of time dilation, right? They're going to be experiencing time dilation compared to us here on Earth. But that amount is actually not very much. I actually did some calculations, and if you add up the, the you know, if you punch in the speed of the Voyagers into a time dilation clock, you get uh, that they have experienced about 99.9999999999 with like 13 nines and then three percent of the amount of time that we've experienced here on Earth. So it's literally picoseconds less time than what we've experienced here on Earth. And it gets more interesting than this because it's actually very difficult to perform these calculations because the Earth is going 30 kilometers per second around the Sun, while the Voyagers are going, say, about 20 kilometers per second away from the Sun. And so there's times when, you, when the Earth is actually moving closer to the Voyagers Right? They're actually getting closer to the Earth because the Earth is catching up to them in orbit. And then other times, when the Earth is going in the other direction, they're moving more like 50 kilometers per second away from us. So the amount of time dilation they experience is sort of goes back and forth. And in fact, when you think about that, then you think about spacecraft that are just going around the Earth. They're going, say, 28,000 kilometers per second in low Earth orbit that would average out to actually more time dilation. So nearby satellites are going to be experiencing more time dilation than the Voyagers as they move away from us in the solar system. Alpha 581. What would the universe have looked like when the cosmic microwave background was in the visible light spectrum? It's a great question, and actually had a hard time getting to the bottom of it. The when the cosmic microwave background, when, you know, the cosmic microwave background radiation is, of course, this point when the temperature of the entire universe had cooled down to the point that light could finally escape. You've got this sort of, this radiation that was able to finally make its way. The universe at that point was completely opaque. And so I did a bunch of research, and the answer that I could find was that that temperature was about 3,000 Kelvin, which is kind of like the temperature of some red, some of the red stars out there. And so you can kind of imagine that in that, those first moments when that radiation was getting out into the universe, the entire universe was this sort of reddish glow from everywhere, which is a neat idea. And of course now, over the billions of years, that radiation has been redshifted into the microwave spectrum. Carlos Basso. When New Horizons flyby's 2014 MU69 by the end of the year, how good will the scientists expect the photos to be? Will the spacecraft pass as close to 2014 MU69 as it did to Pluto? Is there any other science we could squeeze out of New Horizons after that? That's a great question. And like a journalist, I just sent that question along to Alan Stern, who is the principal investigator for the New Horizons spacecraft, and just got an answer. Well, why not? Let's just get an answer from the person who is running the spacecraft. And Alan was good enough to send me an email back. So I'm going to read it now, and I'm sure Chad will put up some cool videos of New Horizons as I talk. Hi, Carlos. New Horizons imaging of MU69 will be significantly better than at Pluto because we're going to do a flyby at a much closer range. If everything goes as planned, we'll get to 35 meters per pixel, whereas at Pluto, the best was 80 meters per pixel. 
After MU69, we have a full program of Kuiper Belt and heliospheric observations through 2021. Sometime in 2020 or 2021, we will propose a second extended mission that will do more Kuiper Belt observations, more heliospheric observations, and will hopefully have another flyby. Thanks, Alan Stern. All right, there you go, right from the horse's mouth. All right, as always, thanks everyone who asked questions this week. I really appreciate it. As always, wherever you are on my channel, if a question pops into your brain, just type it out. I will gather them up and answer them here. We'll see you next week.